Welcome to the 13 Days of X-Men, Monkey Off My Backlog's second annual holiday limited series. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is the Phoenix Force to my Jean Grey, Sam. I don't know how I should feel about that. Like, am I manifesting greatness in you or giving you the power to destroy everything and everyone? I mean, it could be either way, which I think is the point of the Phoenix Force, but also I was coming at it from more of a, the Phoenix Force is obsessed with Jean Grey and literally will not inhabit anyone else if Jean Grey is available. Last year, because movie marathons are a holiday tradition for us, we watched nine Fast and Furious movies and released nine podcast episodes over nine days. This time, we're raising the stakes by watching the 13 movies in the Fox X-Men series. This is episode 12, 2019's Dark Phoenix. Let's just dive straight into the film because I know that we're going to have a segment at the end where we talk about the road so far, to borrow supernatural terminology. Dark Phoenix is the second attempt by the franchise to adapt the Dark Phoenix storyline, which is a very, very famous storyline in X-Men comics. This is their second attempt after the disaster of The Last Stand, and it is Simon Kinberg's first directorial debut because they were like, yeah, this guy has only given us disaster movies as a writer, including The Last Stand. Let's have him direct this time. The X-Men, who apparently are a team now, (laughs) are sent into orbit to retrieve a crew of astronauts in danger. While there, Jean absorbs a mysterious cosmic force which unlocks the potential of her powers and triggers memories of past traumas that Charles has suppressed without her knowledge, which causes her predictably to lash out. That's it. That's the whole movie. I guess there's aliens too? So I think this episode is the equivalent of when you're in class and the teacher says, are there any questions? And if nobody asks questions, we could just leave. But then... The teacher keeps asking questions anyway, so that that didn't work. I feel like, and obviously you're the teacher in this case, and and for once... Why do I have to be the teacher? Because for once it's not me. I'm not the one. Oh. I... I... Oh. I hate this movie. To borrow a line from one of my new favorite superheroes gross i know we're gonna do rankings later is this worse than apocalypse because when we watched apocalypse with Lassie, we thought maybe it would be worse than this movie but did that hold true olivia munn is in apocalypse dark phoenix is a worse movie jennifer lawrence's mystique gets impaled in the stupidest death ever so it's worse do you remember at the point in the movie Where I said, is this Bryce Dallas Chastain or Jessica Dallas Howard or Jessica Bryce Blanchett? I mean, this is like doubling down on the unrecognizability of Oscar Isaacs. They're like, what if we took every red blood cell out of one of these actors and they don't, they're indistinguishable from each other? So is that worse? Jean makes Professor X walk with her mind in the single most cringy thing that has happened in the entire franchise. 
She takes a disabled person and turns him into a shambling zombie who is still alive. Yes, this is the worst movie. Worse than Apocalypse. Is it worse than Last Stand, which was the previous attempt to adapt the Dark Phoenix storyline? You remember how when Cyclops dies, it's funny? Nothing is funny in this movie. So what you're saying is Dark Phoenix should have had a more of a sense of humor. She should have smiled more. Honestly, I think what makes Dark Phoenix the worst movie is they don't go back to Lake Alkali. <laughs> Listen, we've said a lot on this podcast about the number of times they've done the Wolverine origin story. Maybe that was the thing that kept it going all along. Maybe this movie needed more Wolverine. This is the first movie that Hugh Jackman did not appear as Wolverine for even a cameo. There is absolutely no Wolverine in this. And yeah, it kind of suffers from not having that character. And I'm not even sure that it needs Hugh Jackman, but it needs something that's a more challenging or more gruff or more interesting X-Men to kind of balance out all of these performances that honestly seem kind of tired. Or a new director. Well, obviously it needs a new director. Was David Benioff not available? What about Weiss? I don't know. Why don't they hire J.J. Abrams since he's good at killing franchises too? (laughs) Hey, when's that fourth Kelvinverse movie coming out? Will that have Wolverine in it? Who knows? All right. Well, let's start, I guess, by talking. Captain Kirk Mephisto. Is Captain Kirk Mephisto. Oh, my God. I'm done now. Oh, my God. Okay. I guess I should ask first. You've never read the Dark Phoenix storyline. Is that correct? No, I'd probably hate this film worse if I had, so ignorance is bliss. Dark Phoenix is such an interesting storyline, and Lazzie has talked about this a little bit. When we talked about Last Stand, and we talked about the way that they sort of rushed through the Dark Phoenix storyline, he said something that I thought about a lot over the last couple of episodes as we were approaching this movie, which is the idea that in order to have Dark Phoenix, you have to first have Phoenix. These movies keep trying to rush. They keep trying to tell us Jean Grey is a superhero, and she has a lot of power, but then they don't ever actually give us a glimpse of what she is with the Phoenix Force when she's good. They keep trying to rush to the fall before they get to the ascent. So in the original comic book, we get the first scene of this film, which is she's in space. Well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say the first scene because the first scene of this film is when she's a child and she kills her parents accidentally which seems like something that should be in The New Mutants, which is the next movie we're going to watch, rather than this one. But the idea is is that, like, this movie is trying to tell us from that very first scene, she is not in control of her powers, there's something dark inside of her, that she's already unstable because of how powerful she is. And then when she gets the Phoenix Force through the space accident, That just unlocks more of that instability, more of that madness or hysteria. Sophie Turner has said that she studied people with schizophrenia and with multiple personality disorder in order to play this role. So she at least is clearly linking this with mental health and mental illness. In the comic, that's not how it happens. In the comic, we get a very similar origin to her joining with the Phoenix Force, even though it's not spelled out in the original arc. She is in space. She saves the rest of the X-Men from getting hit by a solar flare. In the process, they think that she's died, but then she rises from the ocean, complete in a new and awesome green and gold phoenix suit, and yells, I am Phoenix. 
I, you know, obviously rising from the ashes of her own death, even more powerful, even more interesting than she was before, because before she was Marvel Girl, and let's face it, Marvel Girl wasn't that interesting. <laughs> she was just somebody for Cyclops and Logan to kind of fight over. In the original comic, she is a good person. She's using this incredible power for good. She is able to do things with the X-Men to fight Magneto, for an example, to fight other villains using these powers in a good way. And unfortunately, because strong women always attract the attention of people who want to use them, she is then gaslit by a member of the Hellfire Club because Emma Frost wants her to be a member of the Hellfire Club. And so she sends another telepath after Jean Grey. He gaslights her into thinking that he's her husband and that Cyclops is like a bad person. And so the Hellfire Club almost gets its claws into her. But when she finds out that they've been gaslighting her telepathically, she immediately kills the person who was gaslighting her. But it causes such instability, like her her knowledge that him and Professor X have been tampering with her mind, that she then has a fall. She then becomes the Dark Phoenix and decides she doesn't want to be one of the X-Men anymore and that she's just evil now. Now, obviously, there are some problems with the original comics because it is telling us that women can't eventually cannot handle that much power, that they will go crazy, that when you do something terrible, you have to be punished for it. Basically, Marvel told... Chris Claremont, who wrote the original arc, you cannot have her survive this because she does such evil things, including a genocide. She swallows a star for its power. Marvel was like, no, she has to be punished, right? She has to die. And so that's why the Phoenix arc almost always ends with her dying. She's resurrected later and they find a way around the genocide thing in a way that's like kind of bizarre, to be honest with you. The point is, is that it has its own problems but the reasons for them are much more fleshed out here because they don't want to hurry through the story. They want to build the story. They want you to understand why Jean does what she does. Whereas this just seems to say she's powerful. She's mentally unstable. She can't handle it. The end. I mean, I'm pretty sure you just said it all, but I do have two things. One, you talk about Marvel Girl, and obviously nobody wants to just do Marvel Girl. But I wonder, maybe if that's not the first mistake, maybe... And, you know, it's 2019 when this movie comes out. I understand Marvel Girl isn't really what we should aspire to. What if we classed it up a little bit? Instead of Marvel Girl, we called her Ms. Marvel. Or, to take a page from Deadpool, Captain Marvel. <laughs> would, that, would that be okay? Would that be a movie you'd be interested in seeing in 2019? I will say that the Jean Grey we see in the very first movie that we watched, X-Men, is probably closer to the power levels and personality of Marvel Girl than she is to Phoenix. But also the Jean Grey in that movie isn't very interesting, so eh. I like how you tried to answer that seriously instead of just going with the joke about, yeah, I'd like another Captain Marvel movie. I would like another Captain Marvel movie. Bring them all on. I know we're going to talk about that a little bit. You know, we're recording this. As a Spider-Man movie that we cannot go see is currently in theaters, and one of the big knocks against it is it was being rewritten during production, which is a very troubling sign of the times, unfortunately, with these movies, that because of a larger picture or conflicts with another story, we're 
putting characters off limits and changing stories so they interlock or don't interfere or both somehow. Like, this just, it has to stop. But it's also a funny joke because Marvel Girl, Captain Marvel, Ms. Marvel, they're all different characters, you guys. Two, this is the second thing. And this is more of the serious one. Give you my serious answer, I want to talk to you about Norm MacDonald. Okay? (laughs) I hate this movie so much that all I can think to do is just do what I did in the last episode of Star Trek, which was accident, by the way. I didn't mean to do that. It's just what happened. So here we go. And I'm not going to, there's no comment on Norm MacDonald as a person, as, as anything like that. This is purely just about a bit that he used to do on Weekend Update back when he was the sole host of Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live. And, and what I want to say about this is the whole, you can't let a woman succeed. And just how, how tired of a trope that is. How little I want to be talking about that at the end of 2021. Worse than not wanting to talk about movies being changed in production. These are like two of the worst things you could do, and then they add a terrible director on top of it, and I mean, no wonder The Rise of Sky... I mean, Dark Phoenix is such a bad movie. (laughs) So, the joke on Weekend Update is once every week a joke builds about something terrible that's happened, something bad that's happened, something bad that's created, something in the news or in pop culture that has just been unleashed on us and we didn't deserve it. And the joke is always finished when Norm MacDonald says, who's responsible? You guessed it, Frank Stallone. It's a joke that makes no sense out of context. And it's like two sets of context. First of all, you have to know Frank Stallone. You have to know that he is Sylvester Stallone's much less talented brother. And depending on how you feel about Sylvester Stallone, that's either pretty talented or not talented at all. I would say pretty talented, but that's still a lot for Frank. He does, I think, Rocky IV. It's Rocky IV or Rocky V that he does a song for, and it's just dreadful. He's not, it's not good. So. The joke's funny if you know that, but even if you don't know that, it's still funny if you're watching week after week because you know it's coming. And so it, it, it doesn't, the context of who Frank Stallone is almost doesn't matter just because we're expecting the joke. So the joke works without any context because it's familiar, it's fun, it's a trope. That's what this is. This is like the stupidest punchline ever. If something bad is happening in the news or something bad is happening in pop culture like this movie, you can blame it on somebody saying a woman succeeded too much and we have to strike her down. That's it. That's it. That is, I guess, what's responsible for every single thing in pop culture, 2016 election. Everything. And just to linger on this for a second, am I right in thinking that you wrote a thesis about this very topic? What did I do? Yes, I did. Back before second wave feminism betrayed us all, it had a very simple idea. Women get treated bad. Now women can treat other women bad. So like we've galaxy brained this shit. <laughs> I was going to ask you about this because obviously, like I've said, Dark Phoenix 
the comic book line is something that I hold very near and dear to my heart, even though I'm able to say it has problems. It is a product of its time in a lot of ways. One of the reasons it's very near and dear to my heart is that I first saw that cover of her bursting out of the ocean in her Phoenix costume when I was 13 and immediately fell in love with women. So I, you know, I don't know how to, I, you know, just the thing that made you fall in love, it's something that you're always going to love and you're always going to come back to. I always liked the anti-establishmentism of Dark Phoenix because, yeah, it was a very powerful woman who was sort of rebelling against like the more patriarchal structure of the X-Men, even though she was being framed as a villain. That, to me, really was appealing. It was interesting to me. And, of course, the story is really well done. But my question for you is, is that even though I love it, there are obviously problems with the story as it is written in the comics. And I'm wondering if... Despite all the other problems that we're going to talk about when it comes to Simon Kimberg and this film, can you actually adapt this story the way it is written in a way that actually feels good in 2021? Or is this a story that needs to be radically reimagined if we're going to tell it? Does it keep failing because of the ending, because of the fact that a powerful woman essentially goes insane and kills everybody or tries to kill everybody. I mean, this is end of Game of Thrones, too. This is the problem that other people had with Danny's storyline. First of all, your description of falling in love with this storyline from the time that you saw this character coming out of the water, reborn out of the water, I think, just going back to what I said earlier, French second wave feminists would like a word with you. Are you trying to psychoanalyze me in this episode? No, I think you did it yourself. That's it. That's really that's really all it is. This is not going to become a French second wave feminism podcast, but that's also not a dig because I think the most interesting stuff came out of there. So that's my very lukewarm take. So I just looked it up just to make sure. Maybe maybe a woman had something to do. Maybe 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 Kimberg wasn't the only person with a writing credit on it. Nope, it's just him. It's just him. Which means several other people wrote it and he took credit for it all. I'm sorry, that's what happened. That's what pretty much every man taking sole credit for writing in an early aughts TV show was doing. That's a documented fact. This is Simon Kimberg standing on the shoulders of other people. Now, since we don't know who they are, we could say, that that not every single person who did writing for this film was a man, although to be honest, they probably were. The answer to your question is, sure, you can adapt it. You can, you can take that basic story. I don't think you'd have to change any of the major beats. You'd probably make some minor adjustments, right? Some nuanced revisions to avoid some of the more unfortunate parts of the story that you outlined. But I think you have to involve people who do not call themselves men. Which I know it's an X-Men movie, but hey, X-Men's not even in the title, so you're making this easy for me. It's a movie called Dark Phoenix. It's not called X-Men Dark Phoenix. It's called Dark Phoenix. If there is ever a case to be made that this should be directed by a woman, written by women, crude primarily by women. I mean, I guess you don't even have to make that case in this day and age, or you shouldn't. But again, I'll go back to my earlier point. You guessed it. 
women succeeding too much. Yeah, you could do it. That's how. It's simple. And I think the other issue that really highlights what we've been talking about so far is the fact that within the comics, there are levels of mutation, right? And the most powerful that we have so far is Omega level. Professor X is an Omega-level mutant. Magneto, an Omega-level mutant. Jean Grey, an Omega-level mutant. Why does Jean Grey go crazy when Charles and Magneto get to be completely sane with their power? I feel really bad for Sansa Stark, because when she was playing Sophie Turner in Game of Thrones, she was somebody who finally came into her own and then ended up with nothing. So Sansa Stark had a really difficult time playing Jean Grey in this movie. I mean, they're pretty much all it. You talk about agency. It's like, man, Sophie Turner's had a really rough time of it. I mean, at the end of the day, these characters are indistinguishable. It's like, okay, Sansa Stark starts off as a whiny little brat, and then terrible things happen to her, and uh, she has some agency for a little bit, and that's it. I I think I just explained Dark Phoenix too, (laughs) except we didn't really see her as a whiny little. Well, she did kill her parents. Okay, yeah, I stand by it. That actually is a perfect segue into what I want to talk about next. So one of the big things in this film is that when she absorbs the Phoenix Force, it unlocks a bunch of doors in her brain that Charles has carefully built up over the years to basically blank out trauma from her past. So we're told that as a child, she accidentally killed her mother and very much harmed her father. Her father abandoned her, saying she's too dangerous. Charles took her in. Charles decided that she was so powerful that she couldn't handle the trauma without doing more damage. And so he starts to carefully scaffold her brain to the point that when her brain, her mind is being represented in Cerebro, Mystique says, why does her mind look like that? Implying that what he's done to her mind is something that she has Mystique has never seen before. It represents a complete invasion. And I think that this movie wants to both call Charles on that and also give him a pass at the same time. Because, yeah, there's no Hellfire Club in this. Like, in the original, it is an antagonist who is doing this to Jean Grey. Charles is not blameless, but it is mostly the Hellfire Club that is to blame for what happens to Jean Grey and the Phoenix. Here, it's all Charles. It is all Charles. But by the end of the movie, we get Jean Grey saying, I forgive you. I know you did what you did out of love. Do you think that what he did was terrible? And why does he get a pass? Yes, because Simon Kinberg wrote it. And the funny thing is, this is something we talk about in current events as well. He almost got there accidentally. He almost did the thing. I have no doubt in my mind that professional actor James McAvoy would have loved to do a complete villain turn. I know that Fassbender would have really enjoyed the complete coming all the way around on Magneto to ally because he's not the hero, he's an, but he would be an ally and that would be interesting. We almost got there with both of those characters. If you do that and you don't kill Mystique, Mystique and Magneto are her allies in helping her. Because you could subvert the narrative because what you're suggesting is not the original comic book narrative. It's really something else. What if it happened in reverse? What if Dark Phoenix became the Phoenix? 
because people who had been considered quote-unquote bad, again, that's Eric and Raven, they help her. And that's the story of Genosha, right? And and so we see the downfall of the X-Men in this timeline, because remember, this is a different timeline than the first trilogy. We saw how the first timeline had to end, and now we can see how this timeline ends, right? That, that would be a really great repudiation of what happened. And then you have poor Storm, who's like, I don't know what to do now. This is like the second time yeah. this has happened to me. <laughs> I think that'd be a really interesting inversion. And I think somebody could, I mean, I just told you Get what it could me. be. I mean, somebody could clearly, I, right. I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot of talent to come up with these ideas. Probably takes a little bit more talent to actually write it, but I have faith in women who write. I know we can do this. So, I, yeah, that's what they should have done. Well, they get so close to it, too, because I think there's two really powerful scenes. One is when Raven calls Charles on it, right? And says, basically, you are taking bigger and bigger risks because of your ego. She says that really corny but great line, you know, it should be called X person and or ex people instead of ex men, right? Because all the women are always saving people around here, which kind of sounds like something a man would write for a woman to say, but it's also kind of funny at the same time. But she calls him on it. And then the scene right after her funeral when Hank says, like, why can't you just admit that you're wrong? Like he just he says it over and over again. Why can't you just admit that what you did was wrong? That was a very powerful scene to me. And I wish that that scene, like you said, this movie could have been really interesting if they decided to lean all the way into it and say, no, actually, Charles is the villain. Because we've talked this entire series, this entire series of the 13 Days of X-Men about how Charles is actually not as good of a person as these movies want him to be. I'm just now realizing in real time that basically you are doing to the X-Men throughout the last, this is the 12th day, you have been doing to the X-Men what Funnier Die did to say by the bell. Professor X is trash. That is absolutely true. And this could have been a very interesting movie if they had invested in that. And if this movie was, say, about Raven realizing that and taking the kids to Magneto, I'm leaving you. I'm taking the kids to Magneto instead of taking the kids to my sister. Of course she dies. but Bridging! Right. Sure. But the thing about it is, is like, maybe that's what happened anyway. Maybe the people who are still alive went to Magneto. What happens after the end of this movie? Unfortunately, we don't see these characters ever again. So Raven gets fridged. There are two fridgings again in this film. We've talked about fridging. I'm not going to go over again what fridging is. If you don't know by now, look it up. There's plenty of great resources on the internet. They fridge Raven. If they wanted to kill one of the X-Men to have some sort of emotional impact, they could have killed Hank. And then had Raven like be like, no, like taking the kids to Magneto. I think that could have been a really interesting story. I think part of it is because, again, I mentioned this at the beginning, all of these people do not want to be here. All these actors seem very tired. They seem very not interested in what they are doing anymore. I know that Jennifer Lawrence was so tired of putting on that blue makeup, which took so long to apply, which might be why she's only in the first part of this film. But again, that's production, right? That's production infringing on the story, which is terrible. The one thing that this movie did that I've never seen before in a movie is that it fridged its own main character because that ending scene is supposed to tell us that both Raven and Jean died for the sake of the Charles-Eric friendship. This movie 
named Dark Phoenix after a female character is actually about Charles and Eric getting back together. Hard disagree on Beast. Magneto dies. It does the same thing you just said, and it is the final thing that would turn Professor X full villain. Because the man that he loved died. And it incites Raven. See, I win. Let's write this movie. We can do this. I hate the end. I know you want me to have something good to say here, but I don't. I can usually find the good in a lot of movies. You know I've done a lot of work over the last 11 days to find good in some very bad things. This is a lot like Rise of Skywalker. I have nothing nice to say. I'd like to, but I don't. The ending scene sucks. It all sucks. I hate it all. Although, you know, I I don't have a problem with Sophie Turner as Jean Grey. I have no problem with her inhabiting this role if somebody had done a better job with it. I mean, that's the thing at the end of the day. The only nice thing that I can really say about this movie is I don't think the casting is wrong. But that's it. That's all I have to say. Since this is really the cap of the mainline X-Men, because we only have one more movie and none of these characters appear in that movie. I just felt like the end scene of them playing chess just basically tells us this was always about Charles and Eric the whole time. It was really just about them. None of these other characters matter, even the main character of this movie. That's what I got. And that felt like a real slap in the face to those of us who like the other characters in these movies. So, Genosha. Genosha is the place where Magneto is. It's his DIY found materials village of the mutants. This is nothing like it looks like in the comics. Genosha is a whole city on a whole island. I will say I never made the Israel-Genosha parallels before this movie. I just had never occurred to me that Genosha is supposed to be a parallel for, like, Israel. And I know, I mean, I don't want to get too far into the whole Jewish politics of it all because that just would not be interesting or good for any of us. I obviously don't like what's happening in Israel. I think that, you know, hashtag free Palestine. But anyway... I do know that in the history of when they first started thinking we need our own homeland, before they settled on the idea of going back, of going to that particular area, they were thinking about finding somewhere uninhabited, like an island or part of Montana or something like that. What do you think about the connection between Genosha and that idea? All right. So the all new, all different segment is a segment for you. But I'm going to do a little, um, a little bonus all-new, all-different segment here. Because as you pointed out, there are some good pop culture that does the X-Men stories or these versions of the X-Men stories better. You've mentioned the Umbrella Academy for one. I have one for you. What you just said is what Michael Chabon writes about in the Yiddish Policeman's Union. What if America felt so crappy and so responsible, which they were, for allowing what happened to happen? So rather than, you know, reclaiming their homeland at the expense of people who are already there, they said, you know, we have this very big tract of land in Alaska that that we're not using. Would you you like a long-term lease on that? And so that's, that's what this is. So he sets a murder mystery in this area that the government has given so Israel doesn't exist, 
but the lease is running out. So at the end of the time, you see this happen. You know, what you're describing is very similar to that. Genosha could be a claimed place, or it could be a given place. Either one would be justified in the narrative of the X-Men. But it definitely works. It's a, it's a good idea. I'm glad we got to see Genosha. It might be the least worst thing about this movie. I just wish we got to see more of it. Right. It's only in like two scenes. Least worst. And we don't get very much explanation for why it exists, how Magneto came to be in control of it, what the rules are, what the situation is. We just hear him say to the military, who seems just fine coming in and taking Jean Grey away, we have the same rights as U.S. citizens. So that's all we really get to know about it, besides the fact that obviously the inhabitants are mutants. And that's another case for making this film, I don't want to say Eric-centric, because it needs to be Jean Grey-centric, but foregrounding Eric more. The case for that is that issue of sovereignty, of responsibility. Because Eric's point, in large part, is it's not that anybody's better than anybody else. I mean, he might say that, but the point actually comes down to the fact that they're not the aggressors here. They're not the ones who cannot help themselves, which is a really interesting metaphor for a lot of things that happen in real life. But what Genosha is, is if you just leave us alone and give us this one place, we will turn the other cheek. We will look the other way. And, and, and there you are. You couldn't help yourselves. Here you are. You get what you get. That would have been a better two scenes. That would have been a better movie. I love that we keep talking about the movie that we would have made if we made Dark Phoenix in an effort to avoid actually talking about this one. It's not actually a movie as I'm, I'm starting to see it as a trilogy. And so what would really be cool is you'd have like New Mutants 1, Dark Phoenix 1, New Mutants 2, Dark Phoenix 2, New Mutants 3, Dark Phoenix 3, and Disney doesn't own Fox. Or it could be a miniseries, which is what I've been saying X-Men should be all along. In this else world that we're developing, Fox Plus is the new streaming service. <laughs> I think it's funny we've been talking about this. And we haven't even talked about the real antagonists of this movie because they're so forgettable. Do we have to? I just want to mention them. So in the original Dark Phoenix Saga, the aliens are the Shi'ar Empire who are familiar with the Phoenix Force. And so they come to Earth because they notice Jean Grey swallow a star and they're naturally very concerned about the idea that she might be just running around causing havoc. And so they bring her to the moon to try her for war crimes. Obviously, bad stuff happens when they try to contain her. Blah, blah, blah. Professor X falls in love with the Empress. Whatever. That's not here. They chose a different path. They decided not to go with the Shi'ar Empire, but to go with a completely made-up species of aliens called the Dabari, who are led by Vuk, who you've already pointed out was played by Jessica Chastain. They're shapeshifters, which means that they're kind of scroll-like. Like, I was, I thought when I first saw them on screen, oh, they're doing the scrolls. No, because Marvel owns the scrolls, so they can't use them in this Dark Phoenix property, so that we get the Dabari instead. Do you even care? Like, like the whole point that, it's so weird that she says all of these like weird 
quasi-white feminist talking points to Jean Grey. Oh, I guess it's not weird that the white feminist says all these talking points to Jean Grey in order to manipulate her into giving up her power. Isn't that something a white feminist does? I like how you managed to ask another question so I wouldn't answer your first question. No, I want to answer your first question. Okay, so the answer to the second question is yes. The answer to the first question is I don't care. To wit, I want to ask you a question instead. All right. Okay, so going back to Captain Marvel in the scrolls, right? And in, in Jude Law and all that stuff. I mean, that was a good movie. It was set in the 90s. Hey, hey, hey. Not only did they steal the Space Scrolls, they stole the 90s, too. The MCU. So I'm not even talking about the X-Men movies anymore because I don't care and you keep giving me the mic. The MCU. (laughs) You know, they threatened us pre-pandemic with making this next phase about space. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care about space stuff in your Marvel Universe. I don't. I have Star Wars for that. And it's the same company now. Like, you don't need to, like, overlap. Just do your space stuff in your space franchise well. Start there, and then maybe we'll let you do the MCU space stuff. But until you can prove to me that you can do this, I'm not going to give you more space privileges. Space malarkey? Space malarkey. That sounds like the name of a very specific kind of band. It's like a retro shoegaze with, um, <laughs> with, with notes of explosions in the sky and a little, uh, I wanted to say daft punk, but I think it's air. So you've got yourself your shoegaze, your whatever genre explosions in the sky is, and, and some French pop. Almost dream poppy, but not, it doesn't get there. It's more French ambient. I actually really enjoy what the MCU has done with space so far, but I'm not a reader of a lot of the comic books that happened in space. I followed certain characters into space when they would go into space, but I couldn't tell you if they're accurate depictions of what happens in the comics or not. I just really enjoy them. I think the two Guardians of the Galaxy movies are among the top, top tier of MCU movies. I also really enjoyed Captain Marvel. Another thing occurred to me while watching this movie. It just like snapped into place. And I was like, this is another problem with the franchise that I have. They keep trying to reboot the X-Men team, even within the timelines that we're in now. Like every single movie until this one has not shown us a functioning X-Men team that is doing like villain of the week style shenanigans. So like, for example, in the animated show or in the multitude of animated shows, The whole point of the X-Men is that they are there to help people fight bad guy mutants, and they're there to help with things like natural disasters and things that, you know, they could help rescue people for. They're supposed to be like a superhero team. But until the beginning of Dark Phoenix, we just keep seeing, oh, now we're going to do it. Oh, oh no, Charles got sad, so we're not doing it. Now we're going to do it. Oh, no, he just decided to start school and not do the X-Men. Now we're doing it. Like, we don't actually get to see the team the way that they function together in the comic book or in the animated series. We get to see that a little bit at the beginning of this movie. There's this idea like, oh, they've started doing, like, actually kind of doing these things. But then we just go straight to space and then it's all over. We don't actually get to see any hints that these characters have ever worked together long enough to develop those relationships to go through all of the 
more mundane things that they go through. And so the stakes don't feel as high. I don't get the sense that any of these people really know each other in any sort of way. And so it doesn't feel emotionally traumatic when something like Dark Phoenix happens. The whole point of Dark Phoenix happening is that it's like, oh my God, Jean Grey went evil and then she died. But we've already known Jean Grey for a long time before that. We've seen her fight with the X-Men. We've seen her develop these relationships with Cyclops and Wolverine and the others. This is another argument for a miniseries, right? You kind of do need Monster of the Week to flesh out these characters, along with some overarching narratives. That's, that's the other thing I realized by watching this movie, is that I'm like, they're doing the thing I want them to do, but they're doing it badly, and that almost makes it worse. I take issue with the phrase functional team (laughs) because I am not a stranger to the X-Men. And if it's one thing I know, it's they are never functional. Effective, yes. Functional, no. In fact, I know because I've been paying attention, and we're going to talk much more about this on an episode of Monkey in 2022, because if you know me at all, I am A, a glutton for punishment, and B, a completionist. So when we talk about the 90s X-Men cartoon next year, I will say the same thing that I'm going to say now, sight unseen. In the 90s, you don't make a TV show about functional people. The X-Men put the fun in dysfunctional. (laughs) If you can't say they put the fun in dysfunctional, are you making a thing in the 90s? So again, functional team? Nuh-uh. Effective? Sure. Okay, I actually have two corrections. You're right. They are not functional, but they are effective. My point is that they're a team and they do stuff together. They live together. Stuff happens to them together. They all know each other. My other correction is it does still feel... Unfortunately, because again, this isn't the point of the movie, it does feel like Charles and Magneto have an emotional connection with emotional stakes. No other characters feel connected in this movie. There's not a lot of new characters. So the old characters, Cyclops, Storm, Quicksilver, Raven, Hank, Nightcrawler, Magneto, Professor X, any thoughts? Hey, slow down, kid. That's all I have. Quicksilver got a funny line at the end. Her, her, bring on Boner. Cyclops got to say the word fork. This is an edgy dark movie now. As I recall, Rise of Skywalker was doing editing right up until the end. Did J.J. Abrams see Dark Phoenix and say, hold my beer? I can torpedo a franchise better than you can. And by the way, I had the belt because I've torpedoed two franchises. And I killed my own series and the one before that. And I cut Felicity's hair and I'm a terrible person. I don't know if Simon Kinberg's worse Okay, we know you hate J.J. Abrams. You're gonna have to let go. Season two of Tessa Watches Lost, coming early 2022. The thing before the final fight in this movie is supposed to be X-Men Civil War, like the fall of Phoenix tears them apart. Again, I don't care. I don't believe that any of these people actually like each other. (laughs) So, there you go. Under new characters, I just have Dazzler? Question mark? I have something to say. Okay. Okay. As you know, I am no expert on the X-Men at all. (laughs) Expert. Shut up. (laughs) But I do know, I do know 
The Dazzler is a character who was created at the height of the disco era, along with a tie-in with Kiss the Band, to really hop on a pop culture trend and capitalize. Guys, I need me some Dazzler. This character, she has favorite X-Men character written all over her. I want this in my life. I want this. I want this care. I want Dazzler. If I made that clear, Dazzler is who I want. This was not that. It's very disappointing. First of all, I have to say, until you reminded me just a few minutes ago that this movie was set in the 90s, I forgot that it was set in the 90s <laughs> because there is literally nothing in this movie that tells me that it was set in the 90s. Not even the hair or the clothes make me think that this was set in the 90s. Second of all, you complained at the time, because she's only in one scene, very briefly, that she wasn't doing disco. Wouldn't it have been hilarious if they had set this film in the 90s and still had Dazzler doing, like, 70s disco? No, I, I, no I'm fine with the 90s, and, and I really think she should have brought some big disco energy. Again, I mean, that's the thing. Like, if you are paying attention, disco has always been happening. You see, you know, so I mentioned French pop earlier. There are elements of disco that have been around since disco. Disco never truly died. And what would be great if they had done that, they would have been so prescient. Because disco has come back. And you remember the meme just as much as I do, which was the greatest lie that baby boomers ever told us was that disco was bad. We have discovered disco. We love it. And if people like Jesse Ware and Kylie Minogue at all have anything to say about it, it ain't going anywhere. So bring on the Dazzler. Not so much Kiss, just Dazzler. It is time for Astonishing Facts. I moved to this because there are actually other things I want to say about what this movie could have been or why it is the way it is. But you have to talk about the Astonishing Facts while you're doing that. So first astonishing fact, Evan Peters, as you mentioned, disappears from this movie about a quarter of the way through and does not show back up until the end. The official story is that Evan Peters had to do American Horror Story. The unofficial story is that this movie was supposed to have two parts originally. The third act was supposed to be a cosmic space battle like in the comics, but Fox reshot everything after Captain Marvel did it. So there you go. There's your Captain Marvel tie-in. But the other thing they were going to do was to have Quicksilver have a storyline about him and his father reconnecting. Obviously, that got cut. Little and the silver spoon. Little boy blue in them. You can't have that. Yeah, this is, this is some big hairy chapin cats in the cradle energy. Oh, wait, it's not because they didn't do that movie. As we mentioned, this is the first X-Men film to not feature Wolverine in any capacity due to Hugh Jackman retiring. In her role as Mystique, Jennifer Lawrence during this movie was actually older than Rebecca Romaine was when she originated the role in 2000 with the original X-Men film. I just want to say that Hugh Jackman wanted to do The Greatest Showman, but not another X-Men movie. What does that say? <laughs> Originally, Olivia Munn was set to return as Psylocke, but ultimately was unable to reprise her role due to scheduling conflicts with filming The Predator. Olivia Munn chose 2018's The Predator over this movie, and it's hard to say she was wrong. According to director Simon Kinberg, to make the movie feel as real as possible, he shot entire scenes in handheld photography except for a couple of establishing shots. Because we all know that that makes you a cinematic 
masterpiece. Simon Kinberg probably thinks that Cinema Verite is a bar. It's like he read something about how to make a pretty film and have people tell you that you're a wonderful filmmaker. Handheld shots. So this movie was originally had Brian Singer's name on it because he's, his name's been on all the movies so far. But this during the production of this, it all the stuff came out about him and the sexual assault allegations. And so they did decide to remove his name from the film, even though he did work on the pre-production of this film. In March 2019, two months after Rami Malek spoke critically of working with Brian Singer on the set of Bohemian Rhapsody, actress Sophie Turner told the Rolling Stone her time working with Singer on this film was unpleasant. She didn't elaborate further about the specifics of her relationship with the director and instead re related her time with him to being similar to what her Game of Thrones character Sansa Stark went through. Wow. I don't wow. know what happened, but comparing it to what Sansa Stark went through on Game of Thrones, yikes. It's funny, movies that Brian Singer has something to do with that involve musical characters that they turn into trash turn out to be bad. Hmm. Coincidence? I think not. Also, I just connected Freddie Mercury and Dazzler. You all are welcome. Listen to Hot Space, the disco album from Queen. Everyone involved in this movie kept saying they only did this film for Simon Kinberg, including James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence, and Turner. Jennifer Lawrence did not want to do this movie and said she only came back for Simon Kinberg, which begs the question, what blackmail does he have on all of these people in order to force them to be in this film? I don't know, but it's bad. Like, they keep working with him, film after film. I mean, I don't want to, like, start a rumor about James McAvoy, Jennifer Lawrence, and Sophie Turner in real life collaborating to do something that violates the Geneva Convention. But I don't have any better guess, frankly. First thing with casting is that James McAvoy actually got Jessica Chastain her role on this film in exchange for Jessica Chastain getting him his role on It Part 2. Nobody won from that trade. The second bit of casting news, which I know you'll have an opinion on, Sam. The character of Dazzler was played by Halston Sage. But there was a rumor that was sparked when this film was in pre-production by a photograph that Simon Kinberg took of him, Sophie Turner, and Taylor Swift all hanging out in Vancouver together that Taylor Swift might be playing the role of Dazzler. And there was a lot of fan art then made of Taylor Swift playing this character. It was never confirmed that she was ever in contention for this. She never was set to play Dazzler. Nobody has said that anyone offered her this role. But Sam, would you watch a movie in which Taylor Swift played Dazzler? All right, here we go. Simon Kinberg is the reason for the teardrops on my guitar. Simon Kinberg, you could write a book on how to ruin someone's perfect day. <laughs> you're not sorry. Dear Simon, you're a terrible person. I don't have any more for that one. Sorry. Uh, let's see. This is the last time Simon Kinberg should be trusted with a movie. I hope somebody takes Simon Kinberg into the woods and never brings him out. <laughs> Are you ready for Simon Kinberg to never have a career anymore? Because I am. Nobody, no crime. The Lakes. We could have had her do full disco, but we could have also had her sing Mad Woman on Dark Phoenix, the film. Now you're just playing fast and loose with the timeline. And now it's time for Uncanny Stats with Sam. 
Okay, so how bad was this film, you ask? Well, let me tell you in the 27th way today. Apocalypse was budgeted at $178 million. Ken Berg gave himself a cool $200 million to make this travesty of a movie. How bad was this movie? Number 73. Opening weekend domestic for Apocalypse was 65.7. You're like, that's pretty good. It wasn't. But here's what's worse. Dark Phoenix made $32.8 million. That's right. This movie is a bomb, you guys. It's bad. Ugh. Reason why this movie was bad, number 232. Apocalypse still managed to make $544 million, which isn't a bad return on investment of $178 million. This movie made $252 million total box office, which is barely a profit. The final insult. Top five for the weekend. Number one at the box office. You're going to expect me to say Dark Phoenix here, aren't you? But I'm not. I'm going to say The Secret Life of Pets. And I know what you're thinking. Secret Life of Pets came out more than two years ago. Yeah, huh? I'm talking about the sequel. The Secret Life of Pets 2 was number one at box office when Dark Phoenix opened. It is the only. Simon Kinberg directed the only movie in the X-Men Fox franchise, including the New Mutants, to not be ever at number one in the box office. You failed. You're a failure. You failed a lot. It did do better this week than Aladdin. Can't imagine that was difficult. Godzilla, King of the Monsters, and Rocket Man. And now for the all-new, all-different segment that Tessa does. I'm going to recommend two things here. Obviously, I'm going to recommend that if you're interested in this story, that you read the original Dark Phoenix saga. The set of comics that actually deals with her gaining the Phoenix is Uncanny X-Men issues 101 through 108, and then her eventual fall is Uncanny X-Men 129-138. You can just read it straight through. So good. It's considered a classic. Many, many, many people have actually tried to emulate this storyline in their own pop culture. Dark Willow is a storyline in Buffy, for an example. I actually recommend another reference to this, which is in Volume 1 of the Umbrella Academy, which I've mentioned the Umbrella Academy before. They do a much better job, even just watching the first season of the adaptation of the Umbrella Academy. They do a much better job of the Dark Phoenix storyline in an updated and interesting way than this movie does. Sam, we are going to talk about New Mutants tomorrow. We have one more episode on Christmas Day, nonetheless. So, you know, if you're just like lying around Christmas morning, a little feeling a little Christmas hungover from the night before and all of those presents and stuff that you had to get up with your kids or without your kids to go open, listen to us talk about the New Mutants with Melissa. But let's talk about what we've ranked so far, since this is the last episode we're going to have where it's just you and me, and the New Mutants kind of exists outside of the main timeline, so I want to focus on sort of the more main, central films of the franchise, the first 12. Let's rank them, because you know, we love to rank that list. Rank that list! So much like James Bond we are mostly in agreement. I have one quibble with Tessa, and we'll get into that. But the bottom of this list is pretty simple. At number 12, Dark Phoenix. 
at number 11, Apocalypse. And then at number 10, X-Men, Origins, Wolverine. There's not much of an argument that those are the three worst movies. I don't think anybody would be surprised to know that at number 9, we put X-Men The Last Stand, the first time they tried the Dark Phoenix storyline. Here's where I think we might hit a little bit more controversy. It's in the next three spots. At number eight, we have the movie that started it all, 2000's X-Men. At number seven, we have Deadpool 2. And at number six, we have X2. Tessa, why are those movies ranked where they are and in that particular order? Could you explain that a little bit? I mean, we'd have to go all the way back to that first episode, which we recorded months ago, (laughs) to talk about X-Men. But the reason X-Men, which was made in 2000, is at number eight, is that we both agreed it was more of a proof-of-concept movie than it was an actually fully realized film. It's not arguably bad. It has a lot of interesting stuff going for it, but it's it's just not a full story. It's not a completely elevated in the ways that we'd like to see it. I think more controversial is the... Deadpool 2, X2 ranking. Is that what you're thinking is more controversial? Sure. So I think X2 is actually a really good movie in a lot of ways. And I think that it's doing something interesting. It's realizing the potential of the first film. I rated it higher than Deadpool 2 because even though I really like Deadpool 2 as a movie, it does hit some of those same plot beats as the first Deadpool movie. It's not trying to it is improving on the original but it's not trying to do something different and we talked a little bit about some of the other problems with that movie including the fridging that's why i have it rated lower do you rate them the same way with x2 at six and deadpool 2 at seven yes i do and my point of disagreement comes with our next two movies our quote-unquote definitive movie ranking has at number five x-men days of future past and number four x-men first class now first of all if you're paying attention you know that the top three are not main x-men movies so we'll get to that in a minute i disagree with tessa i think days of future past is a better movie than first class with an asterisk released theatrically First Class is a better movie. Rogue Cut. You put Anna Paquin back in this movie, Days of Future Past is better. I mean, it's not just Anna Paquin. There's also a lot of stuff in here that allows the characters to do more than they were otherwise given in the theatrical cut. I do agree that X-Men Days of Future Past, we've said this before, it has one of the best action sequences of the entire franchise in that first scene. In the scenes in the future where you have Blink doing all her portals and the X-Men doing all their different powers and that like dark, rocky outcrop, that's all excellent. However, the time travel stuff, the stuff that doesn't make a lot of sense in that movie and the ways in which that movie over relies on Wolverine put it farther down for me. I think it's hard. I think it's hard to choose between four and five on this one. But first class is just automatically up a little bit for me just because I think that it It works better as a piece of filmmaking. I think that the relationships that they establish and the charisma that they establish with their soft reboot work a lot better. I really like the way that they're talking about Magneto and the way that they sort of reframe him in that movie. That's all good for me. 
And I also like the 60s, so what can I say? Cuban Missile Crisis it is. Okay, and finally, as I alluded to, our top three. At number three, we have The Wolverine. Before I talk about the last two movies, Tessa, this surprised you. You surprised yourself by saying that The Wolverine was this high on your list. Why is that? I had only seen The Wolverine once before, and I remembered liking it. I liked it so much this time. Like, I remember turning to you halfway through watching this and going, James Mangold knows how to make a movie. Like, this is a pretty movie. And it is so well done. So much more than the main flagship movies, which are very comic booky, and that's not a knock on those movies. They're just not what I would consider to be stellar, beautiful filmmaking in the sense that they're not really paying attention to cuts the same way that this movie is, to the way that things are lighted even in the same way that this movie is. They're not focused on insular storylines where they just kind of hone in on one character the way that this movie does. This movie is a very beautiful movie, and I recommend watching the the extended uncut. I'm not sure what it's exactly called, but I, I recommend watching the director's cut of this film it surprised me how far up it went on my list. I might have enjoyed this movie more than almost any of the others. Just because on rewatch, it just, it just surprised me so much. If you listen to what Tessa just said, you know the movie that's number one already. But just for funsies, let's talk a little bit about number two, Deadpool, which is just a straight up good movie. It doesn't have a plot. It's not well written in that... It doesn't tell a good story. It's well written in that Deadpool's got jokes, y'all. But it's a good movie that lacks a clear vision for a story to tell. And to just, you know, explain what the difference is between a good movie and a good movie with a good story to tell, number one is Logan, a good movie directed by James Mangold that has a good story to tell. That's it. Well, going back to Deadpool for a second, this is a very meta thing, which Deadpool would approve of. The story of Deadpool is, hey, superheroes can have dirty jokes too. The reason Deadpool is such a good movie is that it's a completely different vibe from anything we had ever seen before in a superhero movie. It was transformative. None of the other R-rated superhero movies happen without Deadpool. It has changed the genre. It's a good movie. It has a good vibe. Again, yeah, the plots are kind of tropey. There's not a lot that necessarily happens in that movie. It's pretty simple, but it's so much fun, and it just changed everything. I mean, I can't say anything about Logan that you haven't already said, that we haven't already said on this podcast. What a masterwork. I mean, I I would be very surprised if anybody, I'm sure somebody's going to write in or tweet at me and say like, you put X2 above Deadpool 2. I would be really shocked if somebody put something above Logan. I challenge anyone listening to this podcast who isn't Andy to tweet at her and say that. I just want to see what happens. If you do want to tweet at someone to say that this list is wrong, though, as always, our corrections department at Portly Island Boy is open. Deadpool 3, free idea. Lil Wade Wilson reading Judy Bloom for the first time and going, oh God, that's what happened? <laughs> I'm done. That's all I have to say for this episode. Thank you, everybody. All right, it is time to finally let go of the main flagship series. We had fun. It's over now. <laughs> okay.
and move on to another horror film. Except for this is an actual horror film. So join us tomorrow for the next installment of the 13 Days of X-Men when we will be talking about the final chapter of the Fox X-Men franchise, The New Mutants, with Wild Pretty Things podcast host, Melissa. Watch along with us. Watch The New Mutants on Christmas Eve. Your whole family will enjoy it, except for the people who are scarred for life. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your miraculous mutant thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at MonkeyBacklog. Email us at MonkeyOffMyBacklog at gmail.com and visit our website, MonkeyOffMyBacklog.com. You can find me on Twitter at Swayla Tessa. Swayla is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Sam, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. And as I've said before, and I'll say again, it's not a Monkey Off My Backlog podcast until Tessa spells her last name. Believe it or not, no one will ever find me on Twitter unless I do that. Our theme song is Jingle Bells by Scott Holmes and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Happy holidays, and get that monkey off your back, bub.